This is Silver Star Bible School 2009. This is our first session. Our speaker is our brother Ken Stiles. The overall theme is the blessings of forgiveness. And today's class is the righteous requirements for sinful man. And our reading has been Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 to 20. Well, good morning, brethren and sisters. We'll begin our class this morning with a a quick review of some of the points we looked at yesterday. Just to uh, refocus our minds, we started off with the righteous basis in which God forgives us. Today we'll be looking at the righteous requirements that God places upon sinful man in order to have his, uh, his sins forgiven. Yesterday we saw that God forgives us with the purpose of leading us back to righteousness. It's not simply to wipe, wipe clean our, uh, our slate. He is ready to forgive. Micah 7 verse 18 says he delights in pardoning our iniquities. He doesn't forgive reluctantly or begrudgingly. He, begins, he forgives because it's part of his character. And Moses had to be educated about forgiveness. He's 80 years old. He has worked extensively with bringing the nation out of Egypt. But God has to reveal to him the basis of forgiveness is his character, not a man offering his eternal life in exchange for the forgiveness of the people. David, we saw in Psalm 103, uses the imagery of the infinity of space, the infinity of distance, and the infinity of time to show God's great mercy and the immeasurable gulf that is placed between the sinner and his sins once they are forgiven. It was a different Israel in chapter 33 than in chapter 32. It was a repentant Israel than, uh, that we see in, in the 33rd chapter. Those who had rose up to worship a golden image in chapter 32 rise up to worship Yahweh in chapter 33. We also saw that forgiveness is linked to God's eternal purpose in Numbers 14 verse 21. We went over that rather quickly towards the end of class one, but hopefully you could see that out of Exodus 32, 3, and 4, forgiveness is linked to God's character. And in Numbers 14, at verse 21, when Moses appeals to God not to wipe out the nation, but to forgive them, God links the forgiveness of the people with his eternal purpose. But as truly as I live, he says, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. The guilty would not be part of that future glory. So he goes on to say in verses 22 and 23 that he will not pardon them. Because it's not part of God's righteous character to pardon the guilty. He will show mercy to thousands, but he will not clear the guilty. And he will hold subsequent generations accountable, not for the sins of their fathers, but if they do not turn from the sins their fathers have practiced. Holding them accountable and and declaring them guilty will, will apply to the second, the third, even the fourth generation. So when it was an appeal to that second generation in the wilderness to turn from the sins of their fathers, which they ultimately did. So that the guilty ultimately are not part of the eternal purpose. So we have forgiveness linked then with the character of God in Exodus 34. We have it linked with his eternal purpose in Numbers 14. And not surprisingly we see forgiveness in scripture also clearly linked with the memorial name. In Psalm 25, verse 11, For thy name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Psalm 79, verse 9, Help us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us, and purge away our sins, for thy name's sake. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out transgressions for mine own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. We see this aspect carry over into the New Testament. In 1 John 2, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So there is no other way to accomplish God's purpose 
There is no other way for his memorial name to be realized in the future as it is declared to be and to extend forgiveness to sinful man. Which is why in Psalm 25, David understood this connection between God's name and his purpose and his character and forgiveness. And he could appeal for forgiveness in Psalm 25 on the basis of Yahweh's name. David had no personal basis to lay claim to forgiveness. Sin leaves us devastated. Sin leaves us demoralized, discouraged, downcast, and distraught. But when we come to God seeking for forgiveness, just as it left David, we can find encouragement in the hope that it provides so that David looked to the eternal purpose. He looked to the memorial name and saw his forgiveness bound up on that basis. And we are intended to be encouraged in times of despair. We are intended to recall the character of God and his eternal purpose and his memorial name in which he will accomplish his will on the earth. That's intended to provide us encouragement so that we will not be left in the despair. David says in verse 11, Mine iniquity is great. But it didn't leave him in a state of desperation. It didn't leave him in a state of discouragement. The mind of the faithful, those who will one day be part of that name and part of that purpose, take encouragement that God will forgive So to summarize then, when we put all the pieces together of his character, his moral glory, his eternal purpose, as we know, to fill the earth with people who reflect his moral glory, and his memorial name, the fact that he will be manifested in a host of mighty ones, the three pieces then put together show us that God is telling us, so long as a person or a nation aligns themselves with his character and purpose and name and devote themselves to being part of these, he will forgive them. That is the basis upon which he forgives. He realizes they are weak and erring creatures given to repeated failure and that his forgiveness is needed to sustain them during their time of probation and transformation. For this reason he is ready and willing to forgive and delights in doing so which is consistent with his character in order to achieve his eternal purpose and to include them in his name. It's as if God is saying, here is my character, which is full of mercy and grace and long-suffering and loving-kindness and faithfulness. It's who I am. It's what I am. And based on that character and that purpose, he is willing to forgive us so that we can be part of that eternal glory. And hopefully, too, we can begin to see how this should impact us, brethren and sisters, in our dealings with each other. When someone sins against against us, we are so quick to focus all of our attention on how we have been wronged. You will never find that focus of attention on himself in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. His focus is always on the the needs of the other person or people who have sinned against him. So if God's purpose is to develop us and to transform us and our characters, and he is willing to forgive us time and time and time again because of the great good that he was working out in our life to his credit, not to our own then take that concept of how and why he forgives us in terms of the eternal purpose and his character and his name and apply that then to situations in which brethren sin against brethren. Regardless of the sin, and what we find is that our brothers and sisters are in training as saints and like ourselves will inevitably make mistakes, even grievous ones that cause great suffering for themselves and others, and sometimes great suffering for us personally. These events, when responded to properly, will humble the one who has sinned 
and teach him to forsake the way of sin. So that not only are we commanded to forgive one another if we would be forgiven, but we are encouraged to forgive one another as God forgives us. So that when a brother sins against us, we should forgive him in keeping with God's character and for the sake of God's eternal purpose and his memorial name. And we should encourage the brother to persevere and not lose heart. This is how God deals with us. This is how we should be dealing with one another. So that when we learn to forgive one another on this basis, recognizing that this individual who has sinned against me is one of God's children, It's someone God is working with to transform their character so that they can be part of the future glory and take on the physical glory in addition to the moral glory that we strive for now. When we see their sin against us in this context, we are seeing their sin against us within the same context of how God views their sin against him. There's an eternal purpose that he is looking to include them in. That is why he can be so forgiving, so unbelievably forgiving throughout Scripture. We read some of those stories of Israel and we would have stopped forgiving them long before God did. But he keeps forgiving because he has an eternal purpose in mind. And he asks us to forgive each other as he forgives us. Which doesn't mean just forgetting the sin. It means use the same source of motivation. See the eternal purpose that is is at work in their life. Having seen how God is willing and eager to forgive, and how it is an inseparable part of his character, which is an inseparable part of his purpose and his name, we now look today at the role that sinful man has in this wonderful blessing of forgiveness. God doesn't do it all. There is a critical role for man to play before forgiveness can righteously be extended. It would not be righteous for God to simply extend forgiveness to any sin under any circumstance. It may meet the requirements of humanism, but it is not, does not meet the righteous requirements of God. For the simple person, for the simple reason, that if God were to forgive everyone for everything, it would not lead sinners back to righteousness. And that's why God forgives us. To lead a sinful person back to righteousness. At its core purpose, forgiveness is designed to lead sinners who have strayed back to the right path. And what we'll look at today is what I refer to as the righteous requirements a sinful man must conform to, to fulfill and uh, in order to avail himself of the blessing of forgiveness. God's righteousness must be upheld. His righteous principles must be honored and obeyed before forgiveness can be granted. When a sinful man or woman approaches God on the right basis, the basis that God has defined, and the sinful man reflects the righteous requirements in his thinking and in his actions, and he declares God to be right about the evil of sin and the need to forsake it and not serve it, and to instead choose the path of righteousness, When a sinful man does this, God forgives him and will delight in doing so because sin is exposed for what it is, regardless of the sin that has been committed. It will be exposed for what it is, the great enemy of righteousness. And in this process, God will be honored and can extend forgiveness without compromising his righteous principles. But if those righteous requirements are lacking from a situation, there is no righteous basis upon which God can extend forgiveness, and the sinner remains unforgiven. So what are the righteous requirements that God places upon sinful man 
We're going to move rather quickly through these because I think we're all familiar with them. The first one we identify is in 1 John chapter 1 at verse 9 and 10. It involves the necessary piece of confession of sin. If we confess our sins, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 1 verse 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So when we confess our sins, we take ownership and responsibility for them. We don't try to justify them. We don't try to blame someone else for why they occurred. This is the same righteous requirement mentioned in connection with the baptism of John. In Mark 1 verse 5 we read, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. So confession of sin is the first righteous requirement. If we turn to Acts chapter 3, we find requirements 2 and 3 identified for us. Recall the incident in which Peter and John have just healed the lame man. When they entered the temple, and off he goes, walking with them, leaping and praising God. And a great crowd gathers, and there is the healed man clinging to Peter and John, and Peter addresses the crowd. And he recounts to them, as we know, how they had put Jesus to death, having delivered him to Pilate, who would have released him. And in verses 13 to 15, he tells them that they had denied the Holy One. This is in Acts 3, the Holy and Just One. You killed the Prince of Life, but God has raised him from the dead. In verse 17, he identifies how they had acted in ignorance, as did their rulers. And the prophets had foretold it all would come to pass. In verse 19, then, he identifies the second righteous requirement, the steps they needed to take to have their sins forgiven. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So the second righteous requirement then is repentance. The Greek word mataneo, number 3340, means to think differently. And it's worth reflecting upon the meaning of the word, both for repentance and in the case of the third righteous requirement, that of being converted. To repent means to reconsider. Vine says it means to change one's mind or purpose. Therefore, repentance has to do with the mental part, the changing of one's mind. It conveys the idea of a mental reformation. And it also includes the idea of repudiating the way of sin that we have been involved in, being repulsed by it. The third righteous requirement, then, is to be converted. The Greek word here is epistrepho, and it means to turn around to go in a different direction. So repentance had to do with a mental reformation, repudiating the way of sin. Conversion here has to do with turning our life around. The word means, strepho, to to turn quite around or reverse. The RSV has it, to turn again, to turn to God, especially after having put his son to death as they did. So to be converted then means to be acting differently, to changing one's walk, to walk in a different direction. And these things don't just pertain to baptism, brethren and sisters. What we'll look at today, the principles, the righteous requirements upon which God forgives us, are applicable both to those who are baptized and seek to enter into the covenant name, and they are applied equally to baptized believers who have been in the truth for many years. Forgiveness is extended in both cases on the basis of the same righteous requirements. James 5 verses 19 to 20, for instance, which we won't turn up, speaks of converting one, a brother or sister, who has erred and strayed from the truth. So conversion is not just something in Scripture that is restricted to a new baptized believer. The times of refreshing that are spoken of in verse 19 refer to the fact that our forgiveness actually takes place in two stages. As Brother Roberts described it, we are morally forgiven now, 
with the prospect of being forgiven physically in the future when we are changed from, for, from uh, mortality to immortality. And he described that future forgiveness in which there is a physical or a final release that takes place in the kingdom and our bodies are changed, as Brother Roger referred to in his exhortation yesterday. So do you see how Peter is linking forgiveness, that your sins may be blotted out with repentance and conversion? To have your sins forgiven, he told the Jews, you need to change your mind and you need to change your walk. You need to walk in a different direction. So when a person makes a mental decision to change their life and their purpose, and this is coupled with a genuine change in their walk, then God will forgive them. So it isn't just words that God is looking for, brethren and sisters. It isn't just the thought of God asking us to forgive him, sorry, for him to forgive us. He is looking for a mental change and how we view the sins we are committing. And he is looking for a commitment to walk in a different direction. To repudiate sin. To leave that way of life behind. To declare to us, to, to him, that it will no longer be our master. So th- this is the part that God requires of a man to be forgiven. Whether baptized or in the sub- subsequent years of probation. So the righteous basis then that we saw in class 1 upon which God forgives a sinner at baptism or a saint during probation, that which is the basis of the eternal purpose and the character of God and his memorial name, now finds application in the righteous requirements. When a sinful man will acknowledge and conform his life to these and confess his sins and repent of them by changing his mind, and realizing that is not the way I want to live, and repudiates that. And sometimes, as we know, brethren and sisters, it is the same sin that we are asking for forgiveness over and over and over and over again. You talk to some of the young people who are experiencing this for the first time, And they begin to doubt whether God will truly forgive them. I commit this sin which I know is horrible. And it disturbs me greatly and I ask for forgiveness. And a week goes by, two weeks goes goes by, a month goes by, maybe a few days goes by. And I find myself committing the exact same sin that I repudiated three days ago. And you begin to doubt, will God really forgive me? Am I not being genuine in my confession and repentance? And the assurance of Scripture is that God will forgive us each and every time, provided we repudiate that sin every single time it occurs in our life. And we declare to him, that is not how I want to live. I do not want sin to be master of my life. I have failed you again. But I confess before you that that is not the walk that I choose. And we make a commitment to him to walk in a different direction. We have to be genuine in this. We absolutely have to be genuine. But if we are, God will forgive us repeatedly. Take the time, older brothers and sisters, to share with the younger members who are struggling with the repetition of sin. Don't let them be discouraged. Share with them how God has brought you through situations in your life. He's brought me through situations in my life in which it seemed that that sin, particular sin, would dominate my life. But each time we repudiate it and we declare before God, that is not how I want to live. Peter goes on in verses verses 20 to 24 to show how Moses and Samuel and all the prophets, this is in Acts 3, spoke of these things regarding the Messiah that would come and the blessing of forgiveness that he would bring. 
And verse 25, note that he recounts the promises to Abraham, specifically how in Christ all families of the earth would be blessed. Ye are the children of the prophets, he says, and the covenant and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And then he will go on to define how all the families of the earth will be blessed, as God promised back in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 22. And the way they will be blessed is by having forgiveness made available to them. The forgiveness is the specific blessing that Peter is referencing that God was referring to when he told Abraham, In thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. Verse 26 proves this, because it says, Unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning every one of you from his iniquities. Now the key to understanding verse 26 is to recognize that even though Peter doesn't use the word forgiveness, that is what he's talking about. It's the very same appeal that he made back in verse 19. Two very closely related Greek words. The Greek word for turn in verse 26 is not epistrepho, it's apostrepho. It's related to epistrepho. In verse 19, the word means to turn around, as if to turn to God. In verse 26, the word means to turn away, as in to turn away from sin. So in verse 19, Peter had spoken of the need for the Jews to be converted and to turn again, to have their sins forgiven. And now he points out in verse 26 how this great blessing of forgiveness would be included in those who turn to God. God had promised to Abraham that his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, would make this wonderful blessing of forgiveness available to all throughout the earth. And it's worth noting that Peter, when citing the promised blessing of forgiveness, focuses on the moral impact of forgiveness. It is not simply to wipe clean our slate. The moral impact of forgiveness. Why does God forgive us? Because he's looking to turn us away from our iniquities and to turn us back to him. Forgiveness is intended to turn us from sin, not just at our baptism. And I realize he is appealing to the Jews here in Acts 3 to make a commitment to enter into a covenant relationship, to repent and be baptized. But the principles of forgiveness are as applicable to an unbaptized sinner who repents as they are to an 80 or 90 year old brother who's been in the truth their entire lifetime. But Peter points out God forgives us with the purpose that we will turn from sin, that we will change our mind, that we will change our walk and go in a new direction. If we only see forgiveness as as God's means of wiping clean our slate, without seeing the moral impact it is intended to have upon us and turning us from sin, and creating within us a changed heart and a new walk, we miss entirely the divine moral objective behind forgiveness. There are other additional references to these three aspects, these three righteous requirements that we've spoken of, but just to demonstrate that this is not a a New Testament uh, doctrine, so to speak. None of these refer to baptism, you'll notice. They all refer to those in the household of faith, those who have sinned and are in need of repentance. In Proverbs 28, verse 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So confession and forsaking, the word therefore forsaking in the Hebrew means to abandon, to leave behind. We need to repudiate sin in our life. And you see, when we sin, we have a choice to make. We can either attempt to cover our sin and not confess it, or to confess our sin and look to God to provide the covering for us. In Second Chronicles 7, verse 14, at the time of the temple's dedication, we read, If my people, this is God's in response to Solomon's prayer, which are called by my name shall humble themselves, and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The word humble themselves there means that we are to acknowledge our sinful ways. If you, if you check that with Second uh, Chronicles 12, verse 6, which we won't take the time to, it also means to acknowledge that God's ways are right, to declare God's righteousness in the case of our sin. And they are to turn from their wicked ways, God says. There, there again is the idea of being converted, to walk in a new direction. It's the same counsel as Peter in Acts chapter 3. And they are to seek my face, to turn to God, having turned away from sin. In Isaiah 55, verse 7, it's within the context, remember, of verse 9, in which God declares that his ways are so much higher than man's ways. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto Yahweh, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon So the wicked are to forsake or to repudiate his evil way. And God will provide forgiveness. And you notice the thought, the heart and the mind are involved in the acknowledgement of the sin. As are the actions and the behavior. Return unto Yahweh, he says, after forsaking the way of sin and be converted. Change your direction in life. So one of the points we want to establish this morning is that forgiveness does not happen automatically. If we are simply saying the words to God, forgive my sins, and we are not incorporating and conforming our lives to these other righteous requirements that God has established, that allows Him to forgive us righteously without compromising His character and His principles, If all we're doing is saying the words, brethren and sisters, we're coming up short. It would not be righteous of God to forgive the wicked if they do not forsake their way. Or to forgive the unrighteous man who does not forsake his unrighteous thoughts. God would be guaranteeing perpetual sin if all he did was to forgive sins without regard to these righteous requirements. And hopefully you can see how these righteous requirements are designed and intended to encourage a sinner unto holiness, to return to righteousness. This is the moral power for good behind the gracious and wonderful provision of forgiveness. It's offered to only those who repudiate the evil and seek after God. Another example of forgiveness that's helpful in instructing us is found in Ezekiel 18. Remember, this is the chapter that clarifies the eternal judgment of man. The soul that sins, it shall die. But the soul that does righteous, it shall live. This was an answer, as we know, to the false claim by the people that the children were suffering for the sins of their parents. In fact, in verse 2, the people had coined the phrase, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So God in this chapter will set the record straight regarding man's accountability to God with respect to his sins, and to eliminate this proverb from being spoken further. If a man is righteous, if he practices righteousness, as the, Apostle Paul, as the Apostle John describes in his epistle, and, and does what is lawful and right. And then in the chapter, God goes on to describe what it means to practice righteousness. This is what the man does, and this is what the man refrains from doing. If a man practices righteousness, if he is righteous, he shall live. He shall be judged worthy. But if a man pursues a life of sin, And then Ezekiel paints a different picture of what that kind of life looks like. He shall surely die because he will be judged unworthy. The eternal outcome could change both ways, as we know, during one's lifetime, depending how you live and depending which path you chose. So the righteous who forsake the righteous way could become those who now follow on the path of wickedness. And those who are following on the path of wickedness, if they forsook those ways, could then enter the path of righteousness, and they would live. 
Verse 26 is where we pick up the record. When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and dieth in them for his iniquity, sorry, and committeth iniquity, and dieth in them for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die. Verse 27, again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive, because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed. He shall surely live, he shall not die. In verse 29, then, God makes an appeal to the nation to reconsider their walk and their ways. And as we read through verses 29 to 32, look for those three righteous requirements of confessing their sin, of repenting, and of being converted. Verse 29, Yet saith the house of Israel, The way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith Adonai Yahweh. Repent, turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith Adonai Yahweh. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. So do you see those three righteous principles which God appeals to the nation to conform to? Despite all their sins, if you are willing to repent, he says, defined here as having a new heart and a new mind. Verse 28, you notice, the man whose sins considereth. He reflects in his own mind on what his walk is and recognizes the need for a change in his life. Secondly, if you turn away from your sin and you cast away your transgression, defined as walking in a new direction, away from sin and toward God with a new spirit. And that phrase, new spirit, implies a new way of life. If they would conform to these two righteous principles, then God was ready and willing to forgive them. And their iniquity would not be their ruin. Verses 21 to 22 in the chapter state that God was prepared to forgive everything, everything, everything they had done. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. This is why Manasseh could have 50 plus years of wicked living and take the nation on a course from which they would never recover. But repent himself. Because he recognized finally all of the spiritual damage and tragedy that he had created for the nation. And when he repented, because our God is a forgiving God, and because he lives to forgive and he is ready to pardon, And he is looking for the wicked to turn from their ways. Every single sin of Manasseh was forgiven. He couldn't undo the consequences. Nor could Josiah. But the forgiveness of Manasseh was guaranteed. Because he personally came to see the error of his ways. If the rest of the nation had followed his path. God would have been just as as forgiving towards them. So in summary then, God is looking for us to confess or acknowledge our sins, to repent, to think differently, involving a mental reformation, a change of heart and mind and purpose, involving the repudiation of sin, and he's looking for us to be converted, not just at our baptism, but turning away from sin, forsaking it, and turning back to him and walking in a new direction. This is what God requires of sinful man before, right, before forgiveness will be extended. And it's right that he do so, brethren and sisters, because when these steps are followed, the way of sin is cast down and condemned. 
One of the many wonderful aspects of forgiveness is that God has made it all so simple and so attainable. There's no penance to pay. There's no six-month delay between a request and the prayer being answered. There's no public humiliation that God is looking for to exact from a person before he will forgive them. There's no vain repetition of words such as 20 Hail Marys or 10 Our Fathers. There's no community service or any such penalty. It's not a righteous basis to exact a penalty for someone to pay to have their sins removed or to impose some ritual that they have to go through. That is not the basis upon which God forgives us. Forgiveness is based on his character, not exacting some some remuneration or ritual. It's done as a result of mercy and grace, because he is long-suffering and full of loving kindness and truthfulness. It's not money from our pocket or words from our lips that God is looking for. It's a changed heart. It's a repudiation of the sin. It's a commitment to walk in a new direction. Because he knows that if we are genuine in changing our heart, it will change our walk. And regardless of what we have done, if we are genuine in our repentance, He will gladly forgive us. Because as we begin to walk in a new direction, we can now walk to that future purpose. We can now walk in the direction of putting on that character, of being part of that memorial name. And that's why God can say, it doesn't matter what you've done, if you are genuine in changing your walk. As soon as a person tries to put a price tag or some other type of work or penance or ritual on forgiveness, they actually rob God of his glory and they adulterate the righteous basis upon which he forgives. So we see then that the church has done a terrible disservice to this wonderful principle of forgiveness in associating it with money and all the other things they've associated it with. God's wonderful offer of forgiveness is so simple and so easily attainable that there is a danger that we will take advantage of it. If we turn to Isaiah 1, we see the danger of presuming upon God's grace. We're well familiar with this incident, so we'll go through it rather quickly. Israel, we know, presumed upon God's grace and upon God's forgiveness repeatedly. Isaiah 1 is one of the obvious instances where this is recorded. They were approaching God seeking forgiveness. And we will see this in the chapter. They brought their sacrifices. They brought their incense. They brought their prayers. They brought their general assemblies. They had all the right rituals or so they thought. But they were approaching God in the wrong way. So the multitude of sacrifices... And the the multitude of incense that they brought with all the oblations, keeping all the feast days and the new moons and the gathering and the large assemblies and praying for God to hear them and to forgive them was all a waste of their time because they were doing it in the wrong way with the wrong heart. God rejected it all and declared their efforts were all in vain. He would not forgive them, and he would not listen to them. These are the words of Isaiah 1. Verse 10, Hear the word of Yahweh, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith Yahweh? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of goats. When ye come to appear before me, verse 12, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands in prayer, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, 
I will not hear, your hands are full of blood. Israel was mocking this wonderful provision that God has provided for us in the blessing of forgiveness. They scheduled their meetings. They performed their rituals. But participation in rituals does not bring forgiveness. Their heart was not right with God. They continued to practice their sinful ways. And as a result, even though they assembled to seek forgiveness, and even though they would have had what would appear to be sincere and earnest prayers asking God to forgive them, and even though they offered incense and sacrifices to, to obtain forgiveness, God says that they remained an unforgiving, unforgiven people. In verse 16, he identifies the steps they needed to take. And see if you can identify the three righteous requirements that we have been speaking of this morning before God would forgive them. Wash you, he says in verse 16. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. You don't see the word confession there, but God is telling them they needed to confess their sins, to acknowledge their sinful condition, that they were steeped in sin and they couldn't see it. Confession is clearly implied as they needed to admit that the direction in which they were walking was an evil one. Secondly, they needed to repent, to be cleansed. Not their physical body that needed to be cleansed, but their mind needed to be cleansed. They needed a new heart. And they needed, thirdly, to turn from their sin, to forsake their evil way, to make a commitment to God to walk in a new direction. And then he provides for them. He defines for them what that new direction would be in verse 17. Learn instead, so to speak, to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. If they would fulfill these three righteous requirements, God assures them that they would be forgiven. In verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith Yahweh. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Our sins, you see, are striking. Striking as bright scarlet in God's eyes, like red crimson. That's how he sees them. He can't see them in any other way. You can't hide a scarlet stain on a pure white cloth. You can't hide it, but it can be forgiven. It can become white as snow or like wool. The red becomes white by virtue of God's forgiveness. If we will fulfill his righteous requirements. So what Isaiah 1 is also showing is that God links forgiveness with rituals. Not that the ritual itself leads to forgiveness. But the ritual will generate hopefully in the minds of those participating in it. The kind of mental outlook that will lead them to a condition in which they confess their sins, they repent of them, and they are converted and make a commitment to walk in a new direction. So that's the value and the wisdom and the beauty of the ritual. The ritual, if properly followed, will bring a person to these three points so that on Sunday morning we can end up like Israel if we're not careful. And wrongly conclude that a few words and a prayer or a little piece of bread or a sip of wine can somehow result in God mystically forgiving us. It won't happen, brothers and sisters, unless we go through the process of examination. It's not participation in the ritual that brings forgiveness. The ritual is intended to remind us of the righteous basis upon which God forgives, and the righteous requirements that we need to uphold in order to be forgiven, which is why we are instructed to examine ourselves and to confess our sins and to repent before him. Now, we won't take the time, but in Nehemiah 9, if you take a look at the prayer of Ezra, you will find that it is not so much a a prayer, an appeal, 
recounting the history of Israel, though it's a wonderful chapter to take a Sunday school scholar through because it kind of summarizes everything from the time of Abraham right up until the time of Ezra. And you can have the Sunday school scholars go through and identify the period of the judges and the other periods. So it's a, a wonderful chapter to review Israel's history. But Nehemiah 9 is primarily and principally focused on the aspect of forgiveness. If you take the time to go through there, you will see in the first part of the chapter, Israel is repenting and confessing their sins and being converted. And by the end of chapter 9, they will make a covenant with Yahweh to declare themselves to be lifelong servants of Him. And in that prayer of Ezra, you will note that he cites both Exodus 32 and Numbers 14 to recount to Israel just how forgiving God is. And he cites those two horrendous sins to underscore the fact that God will forgive, provided we approach Him on the right basis. But there are two other aspects of forgiveness that we need to add to our list before we conclude. The first three apply equally between an unbaptized sinner and a baptized sinner. The fourth requirement is that we walk in the light. As John says in 1 John 1, This is the message, verse 5, which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So there's a fourth requirement that God has for us before he will forgive us. And that is we must be walking in the light. An example of what it means to ask for forgiveness and not be walking in the light is provided in chapter 2 from verses 9 to 11 where some were were declaring that they were walking in the light and yet hating their brethren. And John points out that that is inconsistent with walking in the light. The second aspect that is added, which becomes number five on our list, is the need to forgive one another. And we will take a look at this in more detail later on this week. But do you see the wisdom behind the righteous requirements of God adding the need for us to walk in the light and to forgive one another? How would it be right for God to forgive a believer who is content to live in darkness? He would only forgive the person to have them go on sinning and presuming upon his grace, guaranteeing perpetual sin. And where is the moral basis to encourage Righteousness in a person's life who will not forgive others, who feels they are free to hold grudges and to withhold the very mercy from others that they expect God to show to them. How could God ever hope to develop his character in their character? The character of mercy and grace and long-suffering and loving-kindness and truth and the character of an individual who was unwilling to forgive those who had sinned against him.